Welcome to the Jesus Movement Podcast, presented by Awaken the Dawn. We host conversations so you can hear stories from across the movement, receive fresh biblical insights, and gain practical tools to experience more of Jesus's presence in your life, ministry, and city, because we believe Jesus changes everything. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. This is your host, Matthew Lilly. Listen, we believe that God is reforming the expression of Christianity in our generation, that he's awakening the church and he's reorienting us around the presence of Jesus, that God is wanting to raise up presence-centered communities, and that that's actually at the forefront of his agenda and his desire for his people in this hour. Today, we have a special episode. It's a recording of Billy Humphrey, who's the founder and director of Gate City in Atlanta, formerly known as IHOP Atlanta. Billy shares his story of the community in Atlanta, the incredible story of how they merged their house of prayer, their local church, and a global missions movement all together into one ministry and into one presence-centered community. And he really shares prophetically about what he believes God is doing to bring us back to the biblical understanding and model of how we even understand what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church. So if you want to be a part of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our day and in our time, you need to check out this episode as Billy Humphrey shares with us what it means to be a presence-centered community. The testimony of how you've led our spiritual family in Atlanta, I pray that would spark our hearts corporately to, to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying and doing in, in the church and the earth in this hour. So come Holy Spirit. You're the teacher. You're the one that instructs. You're the leader. Jesus, you're the leader of the global prayer movement. You're the leader of our lives. You're the leader of the church. So we, we say, yes, King of Kings, lead on. Do what you want to do. Hold my hand today, Lord. Let me declare as your oracle I ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Okay, cool. For those of you that don't know me, I'll, I'll just share a little of my backstory. I was a youth pastor in the city of Atlanta in a church that grew to be a, a mega church. So I was one of the original six members of Victory Church in Atlanta. And that church started with six people in my mother's daycare center. And the pastors, Dennis and Colleen Rouse, they were graduates from Rama Bible Training Center. And they planted that church in 1989. And I was there, their first service, and I was an on-fire 19-year-old. I'd just gotten born again, and I just didn't know anything except for I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. So that's what we did. We went door-to-door, knocked on doors, and that church began to grow radically. And so in a very short period of time, it grew to about 500, then it grew again to 1,000. And over the 13 years that I was on staff there, it grew to 3,500. And I became the church's first youth pastor. We had a fantastic youth ministry. Uh, we had 350 teenagers. Just for perspective, I, I had five full-time staff. I had 75 adult volunteers. I had 25 interns. 
all just in my youth group. And so we had campus ministry. We had outreaches on high school campuses, seven different uh, high school campuses. And I had the best youth ministry job in the nation, in my opinion. And God interrupted us in a dramatic way in 2001 and broke in with revival. And in a six-month period of time, we saw 600 first-time salvations in my youth group. We were meeting four times a week. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There were signs, wonders, and miracles. People were getting out of their cars to come into the meeting, and they'd fall out in the parking lot without anybody touching them. We'd find them after the meeting. They were, and was, what are you doing? I've been stuck out here. I mean, three hours later. It was amazing. We have so many wild testimonies. That's in the parking lot. There's so many things happening in the meetings. We had testimonies of people. I remember one. It's just a fun one. We had ushers that would go around to the different uh, meeting rooms that were happening in a church service and take attendance. Well, I remember this one time, one of the ushers, he and his wife came through to, to count, you know, or take our, our attendance. And she had lifelong eczema just on her arm. And she literally came in the room long enough to count how many people were in the room. And she's, she leaves the room and she looks down and all the skin is brand new. I mean, that's the kind of experience we had. It was incredible. It was exhilarating. It was powerful. It was intoxicating and addicting. I would leave a meeting at 12 or 1 o'clock, go home, try to go to bed, and I would be in my bed shaking until 3 a.m. in the morning. It was fantastic. And as much of an onslaught of the Holy Spirit as that was, and as violently as it came, the Lord also pulled it back just like that. And the season when he pulled that move of the Spirit back, it put me into a spiritual wilderness, a very difficult time. Probably if I had gone to see a counselor, they would have put me on medication. I'm just being honest. Uh, I was depressed, sleeping 10, 12 hours a day, you know, just really in a funk because everything that I'd prayed and believed for, we had touched it and tasted it, and now it had lifted. And I can remember going in to my office and saying to my assistant, I can't do any meetings today. Let's just cancel the whole agenda. And I would go sit in our little makeshift. We had a little small prayer room. It wasn't a worship and prayer room. It was a room that we prayed in that we had bought old couches from garage sales and filled them along the walls. I, sat, I would sit in there and I would cry two, three, four, five hours a day. And it was the season. Now, I knew, I knew about prayer to get breakthrough, but I didn't know about prayer to breathe and not die. And it was the season that God introduced me to prayer. I like to say it this way, prayer as air. That if, if you're not praying, you're going to faint. And so I just, in that season, I just, I would cry before the Lord. And I, I just, everything, every dream I had, it seemed like it was broken on the ground. And, and the only place that I could get any relief was in that little prayer room. The guy that was the young adult pastor at the time, I was the youth pastor, he's a young adult pastor. He said, hey, there's a conference in Kansas City. He, and he brings out this flyer and it's got, you know, Lou Engel and Paul Kane and Mike Bickle and all these worship leaders. And this is like 2002. And he goes, 
look at all these worship leaders. He goes, honestly, he goes, it looks a little sketchy, but I know you're into that kind of thing. He goes, so I thought you might want to come with me. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do anything. And the Lord had, he'd been gently breathing on me and sort of reviving me, resuscitating me. And I showed up. It was the second One Thing conference. It was One Thing 2002. Is anybody at that conference just curious? Just curious that, hey, man, <laughs> come on. So that was the one where Mike and Lou went under the hoopla and got married. The Nazarite and the Shulamite got married at this, at this conference. It was weird as could be to me. I thought, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But I loved Lou. I, I knew of Mike, and I loved Lou. But here's what happened. So Mike, I think he took about 12 sessions at that conference, and he preached the intimacy message. It's all he preached. He preached father heart. He preached bridal paradigm. He preached John 17. Uh, I mean, he preached every avenue, John 15. It was just every single message, uh, Psalm 27. I mean, he just kept going in on the intimacy message until literally by about the 10th session, I was like, preach Song of Solomon. He preached everything but Song of Solomon, but I was so ready because I wanted, I've never heard anybody break down the message of the love of God like this. And I found out that in my weakness, in my brokenness, God loved me. And I found out that the Lord said that my weak love was real love. And coming out of that season of just brokenness, and I mean, it was a fiery revival. It was a, a time of repentance and power encounter, but I did not know the message of the love of God. So that was like refreshing water to the dry ground of my soul. And I remember coming out of that conference and hearing all these messages, and I get Mike's, at that time we had these things called CDs. I got Mike's 20 CD series on Song of Solomon where he literally breaks down basically every word in the book of Song of Solomon. And I put it on repeat in my car, and I listened to it several times through, and I was drunk on the love of God. I got intoxicated with the love of God. I was not interested in the prayer room. I had visited the prayer room that was on, on Grandview in the trailer at that time. How many ever saw the old prayer room in the trailer? Just curious. Okay, so for those, those of you that have your hand up, you know, about, you know everything I'm about to say about it. But those of you that never saw that prayer room, all due respect, it was creepy. It was. It, it was a trailer the floor was a wrestling mat that they had nailed down in different places. When you're walking on it, it felt like you're walking through some kind of like obstacle course situation. And it smelled a bit like mildew, just to be quite honest. And that's not, I'm not trying to be shady. I'm just trying to like, I came from a mega church. This, it seemed really odd. I didn't know what this thing was. The conference was amazing. The prayer room was really bizarre. That's okay. It's just for the, you know, for, in my mind, it was like for the people that did too much intimacy message, they just put them in that room. I did not get it. And so my heart got revived in the message of the love of God. So I put the Song of Solomon on repeat, but I bought several of these CD series. And, and one was this thing called Encountering Jesus, 12 sessions with angels, prophetic words, prophecies, and heavenly encounters. 
I remember, and it had like some kind of graphic that was like stars and space and stuff on it. I was like, well, I don't know what that one is. We'll just leave that one over here. I'm going to stay on Song of Solomon. And, then, and I thought, if I just get really juiced up on Song of Solomon, maybe I'll want to try that one. And it was the prophetic history. And it was recorded the previous year. They had just done a 50-day fast because 40 days is not enough. And they were unpacking, Mike was unpacking in detail, in a public way, the prophetic history of IHOP Kansas City, really for the first time at this, at this level. And I remember listening to that, and I got through session four, and there was a divine moment where the prophetic leaders had told Mike, once this happens, you'll never doubt again. And he said, somebody, the, the, some of you will recognize the story. It's the somebody's coming down or somebody's going up. And he ends up getting the Howard Pittman book in the mail that night. Or Howard Pittman had a near-death experience, gone to the gates of the heavenly city, and the Lord said, I'm sending you back to encourage a small group of Gideons. And he gave him the specific date of the 21-day fast, 1983. Some of you that are familiar with the prophetic history, you know what I'm talking about. All I can tell you all I can explain is, as I'm listening to it, and some of you guys have had the same experience, I'm listening to that story that's for Mike, and I know it's my story. I know that whatever this is he's talking about, this young adult prayer movement that's going to cover the earth at the end of the age, I know that's me. I, I don't understand 90% of what's going on in Kansas City. I definitely don't get the prayer room. But whatever he's talking about on those CDs, I know it's me. And it's that season that I begin to understand that the Lord was calling me to plant a house of prayer. And so here's what happens. Dwayne Roberts, who's a dear, dear friend of mine, out of the blue, he wants to do a one thing conference in Atlanta. And somehow he gets my name and Dwayne Roberts calls me. And I just know Dwayne Roberts is the guy that was leading that conference you know, that I'd just been at with Paul Kane and David Ruiz and all these different ones. And he says, hey, I want to do one in Atlanta. And somebody gave me your number. I go, well, I was just getting, I want to come to Kansas City because I'm going to plan a house of prayer in Atlanta. And he's like, oh, wow, okay. All right, big, big stuff. Come on. And so I said, I'm going to be out there in June. And Dwayne goes, well, let's meet then and we'll talk about what it can look like to do a, a one-thing conference in Atlanta. So I do everything I can because at this point, I'm convinced I'm supposed to plan a house of prayer, though I don't know anything about it. And I do everything I can to get a meeting with Mike, and it's not going to happen. But I get at this meeting with Dwayne, and I'm meeting with Dwayne in what was then Higher Grounds Coffee Shop, and in walks Mike, and Dwayne introduces us, and, and this is the moment. I'm, I'm sure I'm about to receive the mantle of night and day prayer because Mike Bickles walked in the coffee shop. Just side note, if there's that guy that you wanted to speak to and he happens to walk past you, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a divine appointment. Just saying, this was a divine appointment, but it doesn't always mean it is, okay? So I'm thinking, this is my divine appointment. And Mike walks up and Dwayne goes, this is Billy, and he wants to plan a house of prayer in Atlanta. And the first thing out of Mike's mouth is, why would you want to do a thing like that? And I'm sitting there, this is not, that's not the answer I thought you were going to say. I go, well, and I give him an answer. And he goes, there's 10 different things on 20 different levels you have to know if you're going to plan a house of prayer. He goes, don't do it under any circumstances. I'm, and I'm going, like, I'm talking to the house of prayer guy right now. He should be 
encouraging me. Yeah, do one of these. Everybody should do one of these. He is completely talking me out of it. And I'm a little, I'm just honestly a little arrogant at that time. I'm a little less arrogant today, but I'm pretty arrogant, pretty bold, you know, different measures of both. And I go, well, who are you training to do this? I go, I hear you complaining that it's not, it can't be done, but who are you training? He goes, well, nobody. I go, how about training me? Yeah, I don't know what got into me that day, whatever. Some special, (laughs) it's a special cereal or something this morning. Or it was already in me probably. I needed probably, anyway, anyway, I needed a little extra inner healing or something, some more humility training. And so that put us into two days of conversation. Mike said, you got to move out here. You got to come to Kansas City. You're going to, he goes, if you're going to do this for the next 25 years of your life, you got to figure out what you're doing. Take six months to know what you're doing. If you're going to do it for 25 years, I couldn't argue with it. Because all I knew was mega church. All I knew was leadership culture in a charismatic environment with a bunch of John Maxwell. And nothing that I understood was anything that they were doing. And it was so foreign to me. Well, we talk, and my wife was with me, and we spent a couple of days in meetings. And he says, you got to move out here. I said, okay. So we move. We transition. My pastor blesses me, launches me, sends me to Kansas City. I come out here, move in. Uh, it's, that was June. It's by three months later, we're moved in here. We're going to learn how to do the house of prayer. And three months in, after three months in Kansas City, I'm sure there's not a chance in the world that I'll be able to do this. It's not going to happen. And I remember I was sitting in the prayer room and Misty was up there doing a Devo and she was singing about ascending the mountain of myrrh, which is the mountain of death. I will go my own way to the mountain of myrrh, and she will not get off of it. She's singing mountain of myrrh for 30 minutes, and I'm dying. I'm like, you're mountain of myrrhing. I'm dying right now, right here, because I can't do this. Everybody says, God, I don't know about a forerunner in the wilderness with a bridal paradigm. I don't know what any of that means. And this is just the most odd thing. Nothing that I had been through, nothing that I learned up to that moment could trans, none of it translated. I was just dumbfounded with this whole world of odd believers that spent all their days in this room. It was just odd. I couldn't, in the language and forerunners in the wilderness with a bridal paradigm at the end of the age, I did not understand any of it. So I said, Lord, I am so sorry. I, this is Mountain of Burr moment. I'm dying. I am so sorry that I moved out here. I I thought you said Kansas City. Maybe you said something else. Please forgive me. People had supported me to come. You know, they had supported the building of the House of Prayer in Atlanta. I said, please forgive me, God. I'm so sorry. I'll give all the money back. Just make it so I don't go to jail for raising money under false pretenses. Like, please. That was my prayer. I don't want to go to jail. And, and, and I said, and if you want me to live out here and die in this prayer room, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> I had no vision. All my faith was drained out of me. And the Lord said, do you know how pleased I am that you'd even try? And I said, you like this? He said, oh, yeah. Would you just keep trying? I said, if that's what makes you happy, okay, you got me. And so I signed back up. That was the, my first sign back up. Three months in, I quit and signed back up. It was my first out of the next 1,000 times I'd have to sign back up. And I ended up, you know, serving out here in the leadership team and doing e-groups with, you know, Mike and Alan and the team that was here at the time. And all, they, all those guys ended up becoming my best friends. And 
at the one-year mark, we, we moved back to Atlanta to start the House of Prayer. And I was convinced when I moved to Kansas City that, oh, we're going to do it. I was like, everything I'd ever done in ministry had exploded. I was like, I know we're going to plan a 24-7 House of Prayer. By the time I left Kansas City, I was like, this will never work. It's not going to happen. In fact, I remember early days in IHOP Atlanta, I said, unless the Lord builds the house, we're all moving back to Kansas City anyway. And it scared my staff. They're like, wait, are we, go- are we quitting? Like, what are we doing? And I remember we started with 40 hours of prayer a week. It grew to 70 hours almost overnight. It went to 120 hours within um, like nine months. And at the 16-month mark, it went 24-7 live worship and prayer. And that was 2006. And it stayed 24-7 by the grace of God. And I mean weak, weak 24-7. Worship-led, always worship-led for the last 15 and a half years. It's, I'm, I'm the most surprised one, but the story doesn't end there. So here's what happens to me. Three years ago, my friends from a local church that's just a mile and a half, two miles down the road, they were our best friends in ministry one of them reaches out to me. We had just done a marriage ceremony of a person, a young lady from the house of prayer was marrying a young man from their church. We had just done the marriage ceremony. And uh, Dustin, who's one of the pastors, he reaches out to me. He says, it's like two days later. He goes, hey, I had a dream that I'd like to share with you. Could, could we meet? I go, sure. And he, you know, he had an assembly of God background. And, and he said, hey, listen, I don't really have dreams much. Now that's not true because he dreams all the time. But he goes, I don't really have dreams much, but I, I need to share this with you. He goes, I had a, a startling dream that I don't know what to do with, but I just want to share it with you and see what the Lord would say. And he says, in my dream, we're all sitting there talking. We're in a strategy room. We're talking. And the conversation is how we're going to merge the house of prayer with the local church. And he said, and I saw the hand of the Lord come in, and I saw a weaver's loom appear, and I saw two pieces of cloth, and the hand of the Lord pulled one string, and both of those pieces of cloth came in together, and they became one as we were discussing it. And he said, and I woke up from the dream, and I was physically shaking, and I was sick to my stomach. He said, I went into the bathroom, and I was holding on to my sink. He goes, I thought I was going to throw up. It was such a powerful encounter. He goes, I didn't, he goes, I couldn't shake it off of me for several hours. He goes, what do you think? I go, I think that's the worst idea I've ever heard because though I love you and you guys are my dearest friends, house of prayer and local church, they don't play well together. And I've been, at this point, I've been at it for, you know, about 15 years in the prayer movement, 13 years building 24-7. And I said, they don't, they don't work well together. I said, local church culture and house of prayer culture, they're two different, completely different things. I said, uh, it's just, it's a bad idea. I, I think the dream, maybe that was pizza, except the fact that he was so shaken. And I started, so I started trying to talk him out of it. I go, listen, I'm going to preach really awkward stuff about the intimacy message. I will be preaching Song of Solomon on Sunday mornings. It won't apply to anybody that's looking for three steps to a better life. I said, I'm post-trib unapologetically. I believe we're living in the generation of the Lord's return. I will be shouting that from the rooftops. This doesn't work in Western local church. I said, I'm going to preach Sermon on the Mount so strong 
that it will scare away anybody that's nominal. I said, and, and, and really all I care about is Jesus' glory. I don't even care if the, if the congregation grows. I just want Jesus to be glorified. And I will let every ball drop at the expense of night and day worship and prayer. He goes, we love it. I go, no, no, you don't love it. There's no way you love that. He goes, oh yeah, that's what we want. <laughs> no, you don't. So we, here's what we agreed to. We said, okay, look, let's just come back together in two weeks and we'll pray and let's just see if the Lord says anything else. And I thought, you know, it'll be just one of those dreams that just dies on the side of the road and who knows what that meant. And wow, that was intense, Dustin, and I still love you and we're best friends. Except for two weeks later, we're going to do pros and cons, except for we can't even do pros and cons because we've got now 20 prophetic words, encounters, and dreams that have come from 10 different sources that the house of prayer in Atlanta is supposed to merge with the local church. And we put it all out on the board and I'm, I'm staring at it and, and we're all looking at it together and we're just in shock because nothing that we had planned in the house of prayer, nothing that he had planned, they had planned in the local church included merging in this way and so we realized the Lord was speaking definitively that we were supposed to merge the local church with the house of prayer, the house of prayer with the local church, and that we were to become one reality, not a church and a house of prayer that are sitting there parallel, not a house of prayer with a church expression, not a church with a house of prayer expression, that we were to be one. So we went through a nine-month process of Q&A and asking every hard question, working through all the details, negotiating all the details. And nine months later, we, we merged. We merged our two spiritual families into one. And then three years later to the day, the Lord gave us a name because we carried both names into the merge because we didn't want to freak anybody out. So for, for three years, we were... IHOP Newbridge or Newbridge IHOP, depending on who was giving the announcement. And at the three-year mark, we merged it all together to Gate City Church. It is a 24-7 church. It has live worship and prayer in the main sanctuary of the local church. We have seven staff pastors. We have 50 staff intercessors. We've got a support staff of 10 or 12 that, you know, handle a variety of things from bookkeeping to graphic design. We have 50 international missionaries in seven international bases, and that entire reality is our spiritual family in Atlanta. I know, it's shocking. And so it wasn't really until this year that I stepped back and I looked at my journey and I realized God gave me 13 years in megachurch. Then he gave me 13 years in house of prayer missions base. He put those in a blender for three years. And now I'm sitting as the director of a 24-7 tabernacle church. What I realize is Amos 9, 10, and 11, Acts 15, 15, and 16, that there is something in the mind of God about how the church is to become a prayer-centered, presence-centered people that looks just like what God did historically with the people of God 
in the tabernacle in the wilderness, in the tabernacle of David, and in the temple, the local church is actually supposed to have that same style of expression where we are built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit, a holy temple of the Lord, as Ephesians 2, 21 and 22 describes it. And I believe that the restoration of the tabernacle of David in fullness, it's Jesus Christ on the earth, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem in a rebuilt tabernacle of David that's night and day, worship and prayer on the earth as it is in heaven. But there is a phase one of that rebuilding where Jesus is going to repossess his church. He's going to become the preeminent personality at the center, and he's going to reorder his church from programs to presence, from personalities to prayer, and he is going to be at the center of a praying people before this thing is all said and done. And what I realize is he's just made us a sign. He's just made us a prophecy of what he's going to do across the nations of the earth. Because where I am right now is nothing that I ever strategized. It's nothing I ever planned for. It's nothing I ever whiteboarded with anybody. It's really a matter of what God has done to us than what we have done for God. And so when we say presence-centered church, prayer-centered church, these are terminologies we use to describe a church that's ordered around a dedicated space of corporate worship and prayer as its centerpiece instead of a Sunday morning teaching as its centerpiece. This is where the church is going. I'm convinced of it. I think we'll see it in mass in the next 10 to 20 years. And I believe this is what we're going to see with the Western church, but I think it's what we, we already have seen with the underground church across the nations. I've had great friendships with the church in China, and honestly, this is really interesting. But because they had a lack of teaching, they had salvation and signs breaking out, and most of their gatherings were actually prayer meetings where they came together and they would sing and worship and pray together, and then somebody would give a gospel call and power would move at the preaching of the gospel. Their churches and their house church environments, their underground environments, they were little tabernacle meetings. And so we've seen this in underground environments in all sorts of different forms and different ways with, without understanding what it was. But I think we're going to see it in the Western-style church in a dramatic way. I think the days of program-centered is over. The days of personality center is over. And it's a day now of presence and prayer center that God's releasing in the church. Amen. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it because I don't have another one. That's it. So with that, I think I'll just open it up then. Because hopefully that's sparking your divine imagination. Hopefully that's sparking your heart. Maybe it's giving you a little language for stuff you've already seen on the inside. But I want to just open it up for some dialogue. That, took a little, that story took a little longer to tell than I thought it would. <laughs> but let's just dialogue a little bit. And before I open, I just want to say this. I am not saying that we're going to teach and preach less. I think we'll teach and preach more. And I'm not saying that spiritual family and discipleship and open, vulnerable hearts sharing is any less. I, I think it will be much, much more. What I am saying is the centerpiece of the church will be a place of worship and prayer around the person of Jesus. 
Okay, amen. Yeah, so he said, did you mention the proximity of the previous church to the present building we're in now? So what we did when we merged was they had a facility that was about two miles from the house of prayer facility. So when we first merged, we kept both facilities because we, we, wanted to, we wanted to pastor the human element. We didn't want anybody to feel like, oh, we're losing and they're taking us over or they're losing and we're taking that. We, so we didn't want to do that. So we kept both environments. And then we got a word from the Lord that we had a window in the middle of COVID that we had a window of opportunity to sell our facility, gave us a date. And I remember reaching out to our uh, real estate agent and I said, hey, we think we got something from the Lord about selling our, our house of prayer facility. And he said, well, he said the residential market is on fire, but the, the commercial market, especially churches right now in COVID, it's just bad. It's not, it's real soft. He said, but whatever you feel, we can put it out there and just see. And I said, well, here's a certain number that I want to get. As we, if we sell that building, I want to get it for this number. He goes, okay, well, let's give it a try. We had a full price offer within a week. It was shocking. In the middle of COVID, it was, and it was really popping off. This was November-ish last year. And so we literally sold that facility, moved within six weeks. We were completely out of the house of prayer facility that we'd been in for 13 years. And we were all now packed into the church together. And we moved the prayer room into the sanctuary. I'm just curious if you feel that the Lord is leading you to have an educational component with that. Because I'm hearing a lot of missions, you know, new neighborhood centers, prayer, church, that, but, you know, you're going against, you know, the culture, uh, the spirit of the age with children. So I'm just curious if that. Like a, a scholastic yeah. component. We have one. We have a school okay. that is K through eight. It's about 120 students, I think. It's something mm -hmm. like that. Crystal, do you know? I saw Crystal a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's about 100 to 120 students. My sister-in-law actually is the principal, and we've had it for 10 years. So I, there's that component in our in our. Yeah, because well. YWAM's been talking about the new, new wave in missions is going to be like neighborhood centers, and it sounds almost the same, mm. combining all that, but with an education component. Very cool. Just talk a little bit about a present-centered community in a house church or a small group or like a house church uh, setting. Yeah, so I think that can be actually one of the easier environments. Because if you're in a house church, like family, you might meet once or twice a week, right? Something like that. But then you have dinners at different times at different ones, like you're always interacting. And so I think it's really simple. And it depends on your rhythm. But I think it's really simple. I think you can have dedicated times of worship and prayer and prophetic as a central component, as the central component of who you are. And then you have your fellowship, discipleship, interaction, teaching, outreach, all spinning out from that. So I would say make your one a week that everybody hits the prayer and worship meeting. Then you have the family meal, maybe Friday nights or however you do it, every other Friday. And then you have your outreach components and your discipleship components in smaller environments. But I think make that one a week prayer meeting, the center of it. Like that's the one we don't miss, guys. I think I, I, it's just a, it's a little bit of a tweak and a focus and intentionality. So can you speak a little bit about a, this type of merging the church with the prayer room? 
because I think as historically we've missed it. And so all of the past centuries, I feel like we have taught our children. I've been taught that Sunday morning was, was the expression of Christianity. Sure. And so now that I'm beginning to get that revelation, like you've gotten and others have gotten, and now it's being spoken about, it's been released. We're beginning to get eyes to see it. How do you bring that to the community who think, there's no way we would give up our Sunday morning expression. You yeah. can go have your house of prayer over there and, you, and we'll come maybe. And we may even like it, but we're not going to stop what we're doing to embrace what I feel God's saying too. Sure. Attention, pastors and ministry leaders. We want to invite you to an ATD Leadership Summit in Salt Lake City, Utah, July 26th through the 28th. This ATD Leadership Summit is for leaders from across America that carry a shared value of hosting the presence of God through day and night worship and prayer and gospel proclamation. Our Awaken the Dawn team will be hosting the event, including David Bradshaw, Matthew Lilly, and David Valier. When you join us for this summit, you will experience real and refreshing connection with like-hearted leaders in an informal, fun, and relational environment, including four free meals together. Teaching and training sessions catered to pioneering presence-centered ministry leaders, spirit-filled and life-giving times of worship, prophetic ministry, and prayer to refresh your heart. Interactive breakout sessions and workshops to dialogue about practical ministry challenges and a regional worship and prayer gathering the weekend after the summit. To learn more and register, go to awakenthedawn.com today. Again, join us for the ATD Leadership Summit in Salt Lake City, July 26th through the 28th. Register now at awakenthedawn.com. We can't wait to see you there. And to be clear, I'm not saying that we should, quote unquote, give up Sunday morning. One of the things that I think helped me dynamically in understanding what is church, how church looks, is seeing it outside the United States. You know, like, I've just had, I've had experience with so many different expressions of church that it's been a while since, it's been a long time since I thought of Sunday morning as church. One of the easy expressions. So I have a friend, he's an apostolic leader in China, has a massive, massive network. But when I went to his church, it was a clothing business. And so the top floor was clothing, the bottom floor was clothing, and the middle floor was teaching, training, Bible school, and prayer. It just took the ideas completely off the map for me about what church is and isn't. And really, I think they did a Sunday meeting, but they did five meetings a week. And they did all sorts of training and all sorts of worship and prayer. And I all of a sudden, I could see, oh, yeah, this idea that going on Sunday morning equals church and everything else doesn't, like, that does not really apply unless you're in a Western context. And so here's my point, though. Contextualization is something that the missiologists have really done a ton of work on. In other words, say I go to a developing nation that's closed to the gospel. I can't get a building and show up on Sunday morning and say, we're having church. I've got to contextualize what we do as church and who we are as the church in that culture. Here's what we actually have to deal with. 
in the United States, our culture thinks Sunday morning is the primary meeting space for the church. So I don't think you have to fight against that. I think we can use that to our advantage as long as we have clarity about the fullness of what church is and who we are as a people and what we're actually seeing as the center of the church, which is not a service. It's not a personality. It's not a program. It's a person named Jesus Christ. And so I think we can actually use that to our advantage to help people into a paradigm that sees it as broader than Sunday morning rather than seeing it as a barrier to it. And and I'm saying that I canceled my Sunday morning services five years ago. In the house of prayer, we had Sunday morning services. I canceled them, went all to house churches. My attendance in house church it exploded. I went from 300 in Sunday morning to 450 a week in house churches while we were stewarding 24-7. My leadership was all doing 24-7 worship and prayer and leading house churches, and carrying that load was humanly impossible. And so our house churches went 450 to 450 to four to three to uh-oh. And then we didn't have Sunday morning services. And here's what happened to me. We had Sunday night, and the Lord gave me a word about Jesus the Lamb. And I preached this on what was, you know, what they celebrate as Easter. Be careful of my language. And I preached it on Easter Sunday, and the whole, there was a spirit of prayer that hits the room but there's only 70 people in the room because it's Sunday night Easter. But 50 of 70 are weeping in travail as I'm releasing this message, and it dawns on me, if I wasn't so stubborn and I would have been more willing to be contextual in my presentation, I would have had a full room and 300 out of 400 in travail rather than 50 out of 70. And so it was the contextualization idea that helped me to just say, you know what, I don't have to fight Sunday morning. I can, I can believe everything I believe about the people being church and still use Sunday morning to my advantage in America. What role does the communion table have in creating presence-centered communities, both at the house church level, which is like maybe 20, 30, 40 people, and also at the uh, temple level, which would be like our large solemn assemblies, either FCF or even expanding it further into the stadiums like the Send and everything. I'm going to flip it on you. What role do you think the communion table has? Because you probably have more revelation on it than me. We, we celebrate communion, and I know Francis is convicted about it strongly right now, so give us a thought or two. Well, I listened to uh, Francis Chan. Yeah, I know he's really convicted of it right now. And uh, the quote that I remember is he said that Holy Communion at the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table is meant to be the Holy of Holies in the New Testament. And that struck me because of so much preparation that needs to happen even at a just a human relational level yeah to prepare for that moment if the lord were to actually come and meet us in the body in the blood that's why i'm asking that question both at a house church level and at a little bit of a larger scale yeah i will say this because i don't think i've got a good answer for your question to be quite honest it's a better question than i've got answers for 
But I will say this. I think we probably have barely scratched the surface on what Jesus was praying for in John 17. And I don't think it's mostly about unity meetings. John 17 is not about unity meetings, in my opinion. And I'll just give that as a little teaser. That's what I'm speaking on Sunday morning at FCF. So to be continued tomorrow morning. But I think, I think you're really onto something. I think you're really onto something with that. Can you explain the difference between um, like a house of prayer that has a local church expression with what you're explaining? Yeah. So uh, I think some of our challenges over the last 15 years of what's house of prayer, what's lo- local church, what's the ecclesiology of it, I think we've been confusing because, and, and not because we're trying to be confusing, but because we're, it's an emerging expression in the earth. And oftentimes when stuff is emerging and the Holy Spirit's breathing on something new, it's like, that doesn't look like anything we've ever seen. It, it really is in the mind of God, something historic, but it doesn't sort of work with our boxes. And so you said a house of prayer with a church expression, right? I'm thinking like, okay, I'm here in Kansas City. We have a local church. We're prayer center. So like, how would it look different? Okay, let me put an asterisk on every answer. None of what I say applies to IHOP Kansas City. Well, IHOP Kansas City is a prophecy. It's not a model to follow. It's a word to the earth that Jesus Christ is returning. It's a prophecy. This place is a prophecy with messengers everywhere calling us to ready an entire generation for the return of the Lord. So I don't think we should think of IHOP Kansas City in terms of ecclesiological terms. It's a prophecy. It's a people who are a prophetic people. It's all John the Baptist. This whole crew is John the Baptist. It's a corporate John the Baptist. I will say this. So what I tried, because also some of my conclusions are coming out of 15 years of doing it really wild and different and wrong in my experiences. But what I tried was, we're a, a house of prayer mission base, and we'll have a church expression, okay? And what I ended up doing was I ended up alienating everybody that wanted the house of prayer messaging and reality, creating a Sunday morning expression for people that didn't really even understand the house of prayer. I created two completely different spiritual families right under my roof, which is a bit of a bummer. Yeah, and so, and what ended up happening was, there was only a certain group that wanted to come on Sundays and only a certain group that wanted to come on Sunday nights and Friday nights. And it was two different ministries. We literally created two different ministries under the same house. And so for us, that didn't feel like family to us. We, we wanted to live in spiritual family with everybody rowing the same direction. And so that, that, that was the difficulty of it. And that's how I've seen it play out in other places. You have a church that has a house of prayer. You got all the house of prayer people that just want to be in the prayer room. And then you got the broad group, some people working 60 hours a week, and they can come once a month uh, to a prayer meeting, and they can come, you know, maybe three times a month to a Sunday morning. That person isn't less spiritual. They just have a lot more going on than somebody that's full-time in the ministry. And so what I had to realize was the guy that does 60 hours with his commute a week and has four kids at home, for him to get to the prayer room once a week He's 65 or 70 hours deep to get one prayer meeting under his belt in a week. That's not less spiritual. That's his field is a different field. I need to be able to offer him something that is as viable and rich and real as the guy that's full-time called to be in the prayer room 40 hours a week. 
Yeah. So how do you speak to the growing pragmatism that is happening in the hearts of so many leaders because of what's happening at the end of the age in the context of stewarding the presence of God in community? Meaning we're wanting to steward the presence, like Michael Miller's message this morning, just like it wrecked me. <laughs> it wrecked a lot of people. But I was like, yes, like we want that. But I feel like there's so many leaders, like just across the board, not just I help, I'm just like across the board that have like kind of defaulted into pragmatism that it's just like, like, how do you speak to that? And by pragmatism, what do you mean exactly? Like, like basically, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're coming out of a spiritual mindset, prophetic mindset, encounter mindset, you know, fill in the blank to, okay, let's get practical. How does, you know, how does this look? This is what this really is. It really was a pizza dream. You really da 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 Like you don't, you know, let's just you know, kind of break down kind of what this is, A, B, C, and D. And I'm just like, okay, if I would have spoke to this person 10 years ago, they would have told me this was the word of the Lord and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, that's what I mean by prag pragmatism. It's like they've gone into the practical, the practicalities, instead of narrowing in on the presence of God and the glory of God and what the Lord is speaking. Sure. And I don't think you have to pit the two. I, I, I don't necessarily think you have to pit practical against spiritual. I think you can, you can do both. Jesus really did say, hey, nobody who is going to wage war, you know, goes into the battle without counting the cost. That's very practical. Like that's super practical to consider all the details of how many do I got? How much, you know, is this going to cost us? What's going to be the, the outcome? Is it going to be positive? That's really, really practical. And so I don't think you have to pit the two. What I don't think you want to do is trump practical with prophetic every time or trump prophetic with practical every time. So what kind of our, one of our mantras is we live and lead from the feet of Jesus. So it means in our decision-making, we go slow and we sit before him before we start planning and strategizing. And so for us, it's required us to really slow down so that we're, we're allowing the Lord to give us direction in the pragmatic, in the tactical, in the strategic. And we allow things to emerge real slowly. And so it's changed our pace. But I'll tell you what happened to us. In 2019, the Lord encountered our leadership, and he really set us down through encounter. He, he moved powerfully by the Spirit, set, but set us all down, and he corrected us real directly, tenderly, beautifully, but real directly. And he said, you've built a merry ministry with a Martha spirit. <laughs> yeah, feel that one. And so we said, okay, Lord, we don't want to do that. How do we build a Mary of Bethany ministry with a Mary of Bethany spirit? And he said, you got to go low. You've got to go slow. Build into your family these, these cultural points that we don't just get a good idea and start strategizing how to do it. And then the other thing he told us is that government doesn't happen in the boardroom and the strategy room. Government happens in the prayer room. And so we had to just slow it back down and say, okay, we're not going to do strategic meetings without it coming from the place of prayer first. But I don't think you have to pit the two against each other. I think you just have to employ them in the appropriate measures. So uh, my question kind of piggybacks on the one over there. You had mentioned at the house of prayer, you had wound up kind of serving these two communities mm. 
that weren't integrated, how are you moving forward in this new expression, keeping everything and everybody together? How's, yeah. that, how's that working out? What do you see as the way forward there? Yes, so one of the things we, we quit doing was we quit identifying the house of prayer and the church and our missions reality in different language. We just said, as a church, we pray all the time. We have a prayer room at the center, and we train and equip people to take the gospel from our neighborhoods to the nations. And so we just made language that didn't have barriers built in. Because it's easy to get language that you don't realize is already creating these categories. And so we would just we'd say, as a church, we're centered around the person and presence of Jesus through night and day worship and prayer. That's who we are as a spiritual family. You know? And so it's, it was language that, and we're still working through it on a lot of levels, but it was language that just began to take down the classifications and the barriers. So we don't really think of it as uh, we're a like a church that's centered in a house of prayer or, you know, we're a house of prayer that has a church and a missions outreach. Like, no, the church is centered in night and day worship and prayer. And we um, train and disciple people to take the gospel into their world from their neighborhoods all the way to the unreached nations of the earth. And it's something we're, we're working on. We're working on the language, but as we said it more and more, it's getting clearer and it's becoming more germane and, and normalized. I also wanted to first say I listened to you and Corey's podcast. Come it's amazing. on. Amazing. So thank you for that. Hey, so if you don't know, Corey Russell and I have a podcast called Gripped, and it will rock your world. I'll just promise you that. Truly, truly. It is not a regular podcast. It's Corey and I. We pray for 30 minutes in the spirit, and then we turn on the camera, and we, we record 10 sessions straight. And we, by the third one, the Holy Spirit has taken us over. It's just awesome. We have, we have the best time. I mean, you may not like it, but we have the best time. And the Lord encounters us. But the number of testimonies we've gotten of people that are like, I was driving in my car, I had to pull over, and the Holy Spirit's in my car. And ah, it's, it's so fun. It is so fun. So, yeah. Anyway, Gripped, you can get it on all the podcasts. It's free. Just It's for you guys. We wanted to do it to just serve people and get people's hearts burning. Yeah, Knowledge of God series wrecked me. Come absolutely. On. But I just wanted to ask, if you had any practical tips on discipleship, like with a present-centered emphasis and how to go about okay, discipleship. Okay, so Samuel Whitfield, do you know that name? Yes. Okay, so you live here. Well, I am an intern, so. Okay, so Samuel Whitfield has written the book on that. It's called Discipleship Begins with Beholding. We gave it to our whole church. It's that important of a work. And so what he does is he reframes the idea that discipleship from the idea that discipleship is something in which we are, do instruction as the first thing to discipleship is something that we start with beholding the person of Jesus. And he bases it off of 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it says, we, as we behold him with an unveiled face, we are transformed. We behold, we are transformed. You see that? And this is Paul's idea on how the New Testament church would experience what we call discipleship, to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And so really, when you read Pauline theology, you recognize his whole idea of church is built off of temple and tabernacle. It's all built off of corporate beholding Instruction comes next, but firstly, it's beholding together the person and the beauty of Jesus Christ. 
So I would just, I mean, I have given that book to everybody I can find. He just dropped it this year. It is the textbook on that question. Discipleship begins with beholding by Samuel Whitfield. You can get it on Amazon. It's awesome. And I've read it and then reread it, and then I'm taking my family through it. It's, I mean, it's that much of a power read. So question, where have you seen this presence-centered community engaging the issues of culture? Oh. Uh, and engaging the issues of justice, and how have y'all stewarded that well or not? Yeah. Or just how have y'all stewarded? I thought you were going to ask me another question. They're going to say, where have you seen this work? And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> where have you seen this work? Yeah, I mean, ask me that same question in 10 years. Because uh, I see Dallas, I see Northridge, California, Nets Gomez. I see us. I see Richmond, Virginia. There's five or seven that I know of that I see that are kind of going this direction. And, and all, a lot of us on the journey of like, what's God making us? So, but ask me the same, that same, who's succeeding in it in 10 years? And I'll, I'll, maybe I'll have some good people to point to. As it relates to the issue of engaging culture and specifically the American issue of, of racism. I think American racism is, is maybe where you're pointing. One of the things that I would point us to is Acts 13. And the model in Antioch gives great courage on a lot of lines. First, we see the leadership team is ministering to the Lord. They're in a posture of corporate beholding that's an ongoing posture. Secondly, we see that the leadership team in Antioch is multicultural. And so what is native to the New Testament church, and most people don't get this, is that the whole New Testament is addressing the issues of culture of the day in a very forthright and direct manner. So this might surprise you. The book of Romans, the great gospel account of the book of Romans, the point that Paul is driving to is that they would be one, and he's answering the cultural issue of the fact that the Jews had been expelled from Rome, and now they were being reintroduced to the church, and there was much cultural infighting. The great gospel account, the book of Romans, is a racial reconciliation book. The book of Galatians, racial reconciliation. The book of Ephesians, racial reconciliation. That's the American term, but it's cultural oneness. And so to me, it is a native conversation in the gospel. It's not about present-centered or program-centered. It's about the gospel actually deals with this issue. And if I was to dial somebody in on where to start, I'd say Ephesians 2. I mean, it is so clear that the issue of the gospel is an issue. The gospel itself is the answer to tearing down the dividing wall between culture. And so the solution for the American cultural issue is only found in the gospel. It is not found in any political or social answer. And so first, how are we doing it? First, you get clear on the gospel. Get really, really clear on the gospel. Then you know what isn't the gospel. If you're clear on the gospel, you'll know what other, you know, strains of thought are not the gospel. And so then, once you're clear on the gospel, you can declare the gospel, and then you can live the gospel. And there is an intentionality that's required in the gospel. And so Ephesians 3, that comes right after Ephesians 2, that calls us into love, into transcendent love, is actually about oneness among believers. And Ephesians 4 shows us how to walk it out. So 
these conversations that have, you know, that filled so many of the social media platforms and airwaves in 2020, they're actually all addressed in the gospel. The problem is we have a bit, very American gospel, very American-centric gospel that doesn't deal with actually the biblical issues about the human heart, culture, and all these things. But if we really understand the gospel, then we can speak with clarity right into the social concerns. For the local church that desires to move into a house of prayer, do you have uh, resources that you could maybe reference? And oh, by the way, thank you. I love the pioneer spirit. And 26 years seems like a long time to be in the petri dish for the rest <laughs> of the body of Christ. But thank you for that. And if you have tools or a book or something that you might reference this to, that would be I helpful. never signed up to be 26 years in the petri dish. Oh, man. I never thought of it that way. Um, we're working on it. Like, we really are working on this. We really do want to offer things to the church that give clarity and actually give helpful process to be able to grow and scale these things with clarity of messaging. I'll tell you one thing that you could go to immediately that could be helpful. It's a free resource online. If you go to my website, billyhumphrey.com, I've got e-courses out. I did a 10-week e-course, it's a free e-course, 80 pages of notes, 10 hours of teaching on Tabernacle of David. But I did it thinking of the Reformation in church. I did it for theology that will undergird courage to build. And the phrase the Lord gave me said, theological clarity will give you apostolic courage. And so the way that I see it is that the Tabernacle of David gives us the blueprint from which the local church is supposed to build. And that course lays it out. And it's, it's more than introductory, but I would imagine my, my ideas will develop more in the next 10 years. But I think that would be a helpful resource. I'm personally walking 25 pastors and leaders, leaders through that course in an online format right now. It's wild watching their, their paradigms just get blown. Pastors in, in the ministry 20, 30, 40 years and they're, you know, they're the emoji with the head exploding out the top. But this is, I think this is what it feels like when there's reformation, when there's transformation. It's things that you felt, had sense of, you had a word or two, you couldn't figure out. And then the Holy Spirit comes and he starts dialing it together with real biblical clarity. And now you go, oh, I've got courage to go that direction. So you can go to my website. It's free Tabernacle of David class. It's not just Tabernacle of David, but it gives us Tabernacle of David as the springboard into which we can build present-centered churches. So my question is, since you stewarded a revival among young people, like how can we prepare to steward and disciple young people for revival or for hearing the Holy Spirit? Specifically, like I'm thinking teenagers and kids. Yeah. The thing about it is I did it really badly. <laughs> so I'm going like, uh, what would I do? What are the five things I would do differently? So first... We trained them in intercession. That helped us to get a breakthrough. We trained them in intercession. We taught them biblical foundations, but I wouldn't say we gave them a depth of the word. So the second thing I would give them is a depth in the knowledge of God. Knowledge of God that includes the beauty of the Lord, that includes the father heart, that includes the bridal paradigm, that includes the attributes of God. Like, give them a depth in the knowledge of God. Because we had an onslaught of the Spirit. We had signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, we had many get saved. But five years later, 
the numbers that were still running hard after the Lord was not the number I would want. Let's just say it that way. So a depth in the knowledge of God. I don't know if you heard Mike's answer last night on John 17. That was the gold standard answer. It's we instruct them in the knowledge of God and their hearts burn in passion for Jesus. The other thing I would emphasize is spiritual, like legitimate spiritual family. And the thing you can't do is use the term without being it, which means you have to be open-hearted and vulnerable together and willing to admit your faults. And I think this young generation, they've looked at the church They've gone, yeah, we get it. You guys aren't real. And what they really want is just somebody to be honest, just to be real, open-hearted and vulnerable. And so that's something that, honestly, Christians aren't used to doing because we have a Christian standard. You're supposed to live. You're supposed to look a certain way. And so one of the things that we're not accustomed to is like pastors confessing their weaknesses and areas of sin and leaders doing the same. And I think that should be normative, honestly. Didn't give many amens on that. That's how bristling that idea is. We're, we're so, we, we so want reality, but we're so afraid of vulnerability. And so I think, man, if you, if you can be open-hearted and real and really do family, teach them in the knowledge of God, I think that's going to that's gonna get you far down the road to help disciple them into a, a spirit of revival. But teach them intercession for breakthrough. Corey Russell, online. Okay, last one right here. Two questions is one is you said the prophetic history listening to IHOP, you realize that's your story. Yeah. Could you go into a little detail of how you made it your story? And then second is how are you preparing personally and your family for the return of Jesus? Yeah, so I think the the IHOP KC prophetic history is not just for IHOP KC by any stretch. I think it's, it's one angle on the unfolding narrative of the gospel at the end of the age. And I would just say this, like, prophetic words, they actually point us to biblical realities. And the Lord wants us to be encouraged and strengthened and stirred by prophetic words, but anchored to biblical truth. And so for me, when I first heard the wild stories of how the Lord was getting Mike's attention and moving through the, the, the family here in the 80s, it was hitting me re- in a revelatory way. And all I can say is as I was listening to it, it seemed like it was my story. I, I've described it this way. Uh, I, I felt like I was in a foreign country and all of a sudden I heard somebody speaking my language. It's like, whoa, that's, that sounds so familiar. That's how it was hitting me. You know, that's the Lord. That's the, the spirit of revelation and the Lord just touching me that way. So there's that. And then my own personal family. So I, I would just say this. One of the great desires of my life is to be a good dad, a dad that loves my kids and causes them to love Jesus. And I literally just preached this message last weekend out of Revelation 3 about my failures as a father. And so I'm going to tell you something really good. But just it's out there if you want to go to Jeremiah Johnson's ministry and listen to the message I preached last weekend. It gives the, all the details. But um, my children, I have three adult sons, 22, 20, and 18. And my daughter has just turned 11. But everybody in my house is serving Jesus. Everybody in my house loves the Lord. And like really realize that God has called us to something together as a family. 
And so I think the most simple thing that we do is we talk about the Lord. We talk about the end of the age. My kids have studied the book of Revelation. We talk about it. The first, you know, the, the seals, trumpets, and bowls. We, we talk about the detail of the end of the age. I've gone into it deeply myself. So my kids and I can dialogue on it. Here, here's what I think is probably, if I would say what's the best thing over the last two and a half years, we have one night a week where my family, we get together. We don't interrupt it for just about anything. I mean, just, just nothing interrupts us. We put our phones aside, put ourselves before each other, and we worship together, we pray together, and we share our hearts with one another. We open our hearts to each other and to the Lord. Sometimes we study the Bible. Right now we're studying Samuel Whitfield's book. Sometimes we just share the status of our own hearts, where we are, what we're struggling with. We pray for one another, and we stay interlinked. And so the things that are burning in me are burning in my kids. And we just, we just live this way. We just live open-hearted and vulnerable with one another. And I would just say, like, it's been the grace of God for God to get us to this place. Because I, I share that testimony with really with trembling in my own heart because it's through a lot of failures and repentance that my kids have been able to come back and find the Lord in a deep and rich way. But I think for us, the best thing we do is we have a one night a week heart connect with worship and prayer. It is our family communion table, you know, as Jess was describing. It's that time where we fellowship together with Jesus and with one another. That's how we're preparing for the end of the age. We know this is the generation, this is what we're living for. We know we're living for the soon return of the Lord. We know we're living for massive revival, massive shaking, and Jesus coming. And so we just stay lock and step together in that way. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. We would love for you to hit follow or subscribe in whatever app you're using so that you can continue to get episodes like this every month. If you enjoyed today's episode, do us a favor and please share it with your friends and post it on social media. Be sure to tag Awaken the Dawn in your post so that we can reshare that with all of our friends as well. If you're tuning in on Apple, please leave us a rating or a review. And if you're on YouTube, give us that thumbs up like button and leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of today's episode. And we really appreciate it. Finally, please visit our website at awakenthedawn.com. You can find out more about our ministry and movement, and you can also make a donation to help support this podcast and the Awaken the Dawn ministry. Thank you again for tuning in today, and don't forget, Jesus changes everything.